when you start too early, people are like, oh, it is too early. And I think people that are professional investors understand that they're looking for a two to four year time horizon. And you're starting on a time horizon that probably they understand takes longer. They think it's sort of crazy fundamentally. But if you have the time horizon and you have the fortitude and the resilience, then you stay at it and come the other side. We're 20 years in and we still haven't accepted any money. And we have about 500 employees. We operate on a global basis. We have hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue and we still don't have anybody telling us what to do. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Harry Kargman is the founder and CEO of Cargo an advertising agency that specializes in innovative mobile campaigns for the world's biggest brands. Since its founding back in 2003, Cargo has worked with the New York Times, Hearst, NBC, and was recognized in 2015 by Inc. Magazine as one of the top 500 fastest-growing companies in the United States. In 2016, Harry was also named an EY Entrepreneur of the Year and he currently holds more than 50 patents related to Cargo's technology. He never went out and sought VC. And today, the business has over 300 employees and is thriving. I loved how he talked about patience and all the patience he had along the way and the pivots he had to make to turn Cargo into a successful company. It's a true entrepreneurial tale. I started out by asking him what it was like growing up. And were there influences that inspired him to become the entrepreneur he is today? Well, it's funny. My, my, I grew up in Boston, actually in Newton, Massachusetts. I grew up on Lake Avenue. Uh, so if, you, if anybody's from Newton, they know that there's Crystal Lake. And across from the swimming area, there's a house with a tree in the middle of the backyard. I was lucky enough to grow up in that idyllic uh, neighborhood, typical suburban kid. My dad was a real estate developer, but was, I guess, an entrepreneur himself because he started his own real estate company. And what's funny is my sisters, none of them have ended up working for large companies. They've all gone off and done whatever they had to do. So I guess when you model building something yourself, kids tend to see that. And at least in our family, that seemed to be the path that we've all, that we all sort of went down. Maybe, maybe my parents put so much love and attention into us that we were overly confident and thought that we could do it without the infrastructure of, of like a company around us. So whether we were lucky enough or delusional enough, all three of us have gone off and done things. My sister is a documentary filmmaker. My other sister is a movie producer. And, and I obviously have focused on technology. So, But I would say that beyond my father and, and my grandfather, which, who grew up actually in the south side of Chicago, very poor in a tenement and was totally self-made built a, uh, didn't actually never went to college, instead went to night law school and ended up going into the Marines, coming out of the Marines and getting a PhD from Harvard without ever getting a college degree. It's pretty amazing. amazing. That is incredible. But (laughs) that was back in, you know, the era of World War II and uh, effectively went into the mortgage business and real estate business in Boston. I think in looking at influences around me that really had an impact you know, I looked at at folks like Bill Gates, 
and how they sort of started things in their garage and Steve Jobs, even in in when I was in college, I would go out to Comdex, which is no longer around. I guess CMC. Yeah, I forgot about but, that. But I, I used to go to Comdex every year and fly out. I always felt that there was this frontier in technology that was greenfields. And if you got in and stayed true to it and focused on it, you would figure out a path to creating something that would have sort of longevity. And so, you know, when I looked at the creators, the inventors, and the entrepreneurs that sort of created something miraculous, you know, I, I didn't know if I could actually do that, but I certainly wanted to lean in and, and see whether I could actually pull something off myself. Yeah. You talked about your family and and watching your dad, even I'm not sure if you saw your grandfather, but building things and doing things on their own. But you ended up starting initially going to Intel. And, and that's an interesting story. So you didn't really just dive right into, let's say, creating your own business right away. What was your thinking then? And, and how did that go down? Yeah. So technology felt to me like the new frontier. I guess one of the things that I think about is that my father was in the real estate business, sort of carving out a property and creating buildings where no buildings existed. And that same idea of of developing new frontiers and carving out property and building new things in the virtual uh, world was something that I was always very passionate about. So I would say from early on, even in high school, and this sort of dates me, we were like, they just introduced in the curriculum computer science. So I was like one of the earliest people to take computer science in, in high school. And it's funny, the school that I went to, Belmont Hill, very sports oriented. So there was not that many of us that were in the computer lab working on those earliest, you know, Apple II. Do you remember yeah. I had an Apple II GS? There was a Commodore 64. Commodore 64. Uh, I remember that. I love Vic 20. I think I had a Vic 20. <laughs> then there was the Apple Lisa. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. That didn't work then, too well. No. And then there was obviously those the squarish Apple boxes, you know, the first Macs and, and the rest is history. So even going back to there, I was always passionate about technology. I would say when I went to, uh, I was Harvard undergrad. I spent my first summer at Stanford taking pretty much every computer science class that they offered that I could, I could handle during the summer. I was living out in Silicon Valley. That next summer, I worked at uh, Boston Consulting Group in their media and technology practice. And then the fo- following summer after that, I actually, I took a year off and I was working for a what we called at the time digital broadband applications company. It was wired up 36,000 homes in Conshohocken, Pennsylvania, and it was delivering network neighborhood and video services via fiber. This was at the inception of Bell Atlantic Video Interactive Test. So I was always like, where's the world shifting? Where is it changing? And I don't know necessarily exactly what I want to do, but I want to either add a company or working close to or around where the things were, were actually taking place. And so you know, just being there for a year, I was there for a full year from summer to the next summer, writing software for teachers to talk to uh, students in this 36,000 home neighborhood that was all wired up. And this was, this would have been in 1993, 94. So very yeah, early in terms of sort of that interactive experience. And then went to Intel and worked at its venture group for a summer and got to see every business plan in the sort of call that this 96 of every amazing company that was being developed 
in Silicon Valley at the time. And the focus that I had was focused on sort of all of the next generation broadband companies. So like at home, all the, the search companies. So there was Lycos, there was Google at the time, there was AltaVista. These were the companies that were, were coming up. And a number of sort of interesting companies, We I was involved in the funding, which I later went to, of a company called Entertainer. And that was truly the first streaming video company and had rights to Sony's library, had rights to... And Sony, if you remember at the time, was the largest... That was... you know They had the Spider-Man franchise. That was the largest... Sony Pictures Entertainment was by far the largest movie studio at the time, I, or it felt like it with all of the tier one titles that they had. So they had Sony, they had Universal, they had... the, And so we were in the middle of streaming. Obviously, Netflix came in later and they started with shipping CDs or DVDs, but I was right there when this, this world started to come and how together. Did, how does that, like you talk about that, you, it was Netflix, basically. You were ahead of your time. The technology, I assume, was probably not there. When you think back to that and being one of the first people there, what's the feeling that, not that, I, I mean, you've been extremely successful regardless, but thinking about it, that you had this business, but as we all know, as entrepreneurs, sometimes you're just early, you're, you know, how does it, when you think back, like, and think about that, what's your, your reaction? I think somebody said, and I don't know how the exact tagline, but like luck is the combination of capability meets opportunity. And opportunity is really is driven by a window of time where things ripen and become come real. And so even in my own business, I started my own business in 2003. And the reality was it was too early. Went from 2003 to, I would say, 2011, 2010, 2011, which I would say is the was the beginning of the year of mobile in the advertising media world. They said, when is the year of mobile? And it really started in 2011, but it probably didn't come to true fruition until 2016. I would say from 2003, when I started to 2010, 2011, my wife was even like, and I had, you know, my first young children, 2003, she, my wife was like, when is this idea of this company that you started (laughs) really going to become real? Right. And I said to her, well, I think no later than March of 2008. And then it was another... (laughs) Two years after that. So patience definitely is a requirement. It's a key ingredient. If you start something, you just have to stay at it and work through the changes that are taking place in the marketplace. And what made you at that time, as you said, Intel and, and being there and then entertainer? And what was it at that point where you said to yourself or thought to yourself or actually did start your own business? Why? Yeah. So I was at Entertainer. Again, I was involved with it when I was at Intel and, and I was part of the team that that funded it. And so I was at Entertainer. I, I thought what we were doing was extraordinarily interesting. What we were building was truly sort of a precursor to the streaming services that exist today. And frankly, they were the only ones and they were super well-funded. The challenge is I was working in corporate business development and helping the CFO put together some models as we were raising incremental rounds of funding. 
And as I looked at our cost structure, we had an agreement with Level 3 at the time, which was a broadband provider. We had agreements with a variety of different MSOs, cable companies, to actually put the hardware to be able to serve the movies into the home through the cable pipes with cable modems getting faster and faster. And at the time, it took us $44 per movie per night for us (laughs) to break even on the cost. Forget the actual invested some cost in all the equipment infrastructure <laughs> and coding, but it was basically $44 per movie for, per night for us to break even. And I said, I just don't think that the company's going to have enough funding to get to be cheaper than Blockbuster Video, which was, was that yeah. was everywhere. So it was like the price to beat was like $4, call it. If you could get, if you could give it into the home four to $5, you're going to be a winner. But anything yeah. more than that, people will just drive to Blockbuster and pick up the video themselves. So I saw that and I looked at the pricing coming down by, call it 50% every year. That was still too many years out for it to be competitive with that of just going to your VCR or DVD rental store. And at the time, I went, I was sort of searching the internet and I saw that phone.com which was the operating system at the time in most of the handsets, had their first developers conference, if you will. And so I I actually went on vacation, went up to... I was... Entertainer was based in LA, but I went up to the Valley and where I think they were in Redwood Shores or Redwood City. And I went to this quote-unquote conference and maybe there was like 30 people there, max. And basically, they taught you how to code in what at the time was WML. And I was like, this is the future. And it was like on these small, crappy flip phones with monochrome, you know, like that was like a a monochrome screen with like large digits. It looked like totally 80s. But even though that was late 90s, early 2000s, but, but I knew that that was where the future would be. I didn't know exactly the role that we would play or how or role that I would play. But it seemed to me that you needed to provide sort of content services to the wireless operators at the time because the wireless operators really controlled the ecosystem. And so that's, and I was too early, you know, yeah. like that, that goes back. I was too early. So that was the, that's where you could play. And people were getting funded then in the, you know, in the early 2000s, it was just coming out of that dot, dot com bust. And, but I, I didn't get funded. I bootstrapped the whole thing and off we were, we were off and running. I want to ask you, how come you didn't get caught up? especially being out in California in that whole late 90s dot-com, what kept you out of going to a dot-com or, or starting a dot-com, so to speak? Again, I think your decisions really come out of your experiences. When I was at Intel, I was really focused not on the dot-coms, but on the forefront of, of where the next thing was. And the next thing was on mobile. And so, and again, I think when you're in your early 20s, you don't realize just how long it takes for things to mature. So you're like, well, if I'll be here this year and I'm going to put it, it's going to take us two to three years to get there. By 2006, we should be set. (laughs) And then 2007, 2008, you just don't realize how much time. I mean, there are people that get very lucky, but for the most part, the technology, the capabilities, the bandwidth, the processing speed, and, and sort of the reach... All those things take time to mature. And so you can start with an idea and you you realize that the idea isn't viable until it becomes viable. And that and it requires all of those different conditions. 
And so there are people that have been hit by the lucky stick that happen to start exactly the right thing at exactly the right time when exactly the right conditions emerge. But most things, I think, don't operate that way. And so really, this was the right thesis, but it's just the right thesis too early. And I had to sort of wait. And that goes back to funding. It goes back to not being a Me Too company or, or doing something that other people were doing. And it's part of the reason why I think was a, a forced bootstrap at the time because you, you were too early and people didn't necessarily see the value of it. When you start too early, people are like, oh, it is too early. And I think people that are professional investors understand that they're looking for a two to four year time horizon. And you're starting on a time horizon that probably they understand takes longer. They think it's sort of crazy fundamentally. But if you have the time horizon and you have the fortitude and the resilience, then you stay at it and you know come the other side. We're 20 years in and we still haven't accepted any money. And we have about 500 employees. We operate on a global basis. We have hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue. And we still don't have anybody telling us what to do. That's always a nice thing. And, and just from that standpoint, two questions. And I want to get into and I want you to explain exactly what Cargo does. But First, how were you able... It seems like a theme in in your business career is being too early, being too early to the game and having to have that... You had this patience. You were obviously inspired, but you had this patience because even when you started this business, three, you knew it was going to take time. Where does that come from, that patience internally? Well, I think there's two components. One is, just funny enough, I'm not sure that I'm the best employee So whether I was going to hold down a job and sort of rise through the ranks in a larger professional organization, maybe, but I could have easily been laid off or fired too, because I'm pretty headstrong. I know, I think I know where things are going. And I was, I have more humility now than I think I did back then. And so I think there was a recognition that I either better make it on my own or, and write my own sort of path. Or I may not actually end up in a position or in a path that that ends up with a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. So I think there was a, a certain sort of recognition in terms of sort of who I was as a human being that this was the best opportunity or path. There was a you know as I said, there was a a certain recognition that I saw the world slightly differently than most people. In other words, I had convictions around things like mobile emerging and the timing around emerging and sort of being there as it emerged and the ability to sort of bring something that doesn't exist into existence. So the idea of a fortitude of of conviction around the thesis that mobile was going to be something core to our lives and also confidence that I could figure out elements of the mobile universe that would be critical and grow as the mobile platform itself grew, I think I had those two pieces that allowed me to sort of weather this uncertain time horizon and bring things around. I I really do believe, and I've seen it with executives that have been at Cargo over the years, especially senior executives, the ability to operate within a, a plane of uncertainty. And I think that's really something that is core to the entrepreneurial experience is that you don't have the answers. You don't know of this path, this path, and this path, which is the right path. You have your gut instinct. You have some signals. You have some noise too. You don't know which is noise and which is signals. And you have to sort of take all of that information, process it, and basically pick a direction. 
And you have to march in that direction with no certainty that that is the right direction. And you have to march in a way with such conviction that you bring other people along with you. Otherwise, if you show a lack of confidence, I guess, or a lack of certainty, other people will lose confidence in themselves because they want to know that they're not spending their time on the wrong thing. So you have to have all those pieces, whether they are the right thing or not, and basically continue to march forward. And, and you know, it's so well said. You brought brought up a point with being an entrepreneur. I'm very similar to you. I don't think I would have lasted anywhere. No one would have wanted me as an employee. And like you said, just that uncertainty it's such a difficult part of being an entrepreneur because a lot of times I know for myself, I want certainty. I want to know this is going to work. I want to know that what our sales are going to be this year. And it's so, as an entrepreneur, it's so difficult to that for me, I find one of the hardest things, but also one of the most exciting things as well that you don't know what could happen, what could change. And it sounds like for you and, and starting Cargo and having that patience, and I know starting the business, and I will tell you, you obviously saw something in a right because I can't peel my kid off of TikTok. So you're definitely right there. But tell me first, go into exactly when you started in 03, what the vision was, what was Cargo, and then how you pivoted along the way. So we actually pivoted probably five times since the inception of the company, and we continue to pivot. In fact, even though I my conviction was mobile, we have now just invested and bought a CTV company. I bought a mobile discovery company. So you know I'm able to sort of let go of as we've sort of come to realization that vision and sort of create a new vision for where things are, always recalibrating based upon the period of time that we exist in. So at the beginning, and answer your question. At the very beginning, the idea very simply was wireless operators controlled the ecosystem. They controlled the handsets. They controlled the network. There was no iPhone. There was no Android. There was no outside access to the internet, really. And all the services on the phone were already predetermined by the operator. And there was an entire world around what we call value-added services. You wanted access to news, weather, sports. Guess what? You're going to pay $2.99 a month. It's go, you're going to click on it, a little OK button will pop yeah. up and then it'll get charged on your cell phone bill. So that was the business. The business was, how do we provide the portal, the software, and the technology to the wireless operators so that they could build these value-added services for consumers on flip phones? And how do we provide some of the capabilities to publishers so that they could go and build their sites and create ringtones and create images and games that would actually allow that ecosystem to flourish because there would be a broad set of, of fun things that people could get access to, whether it's downloading a new ringtone, saving a new screensaver, buying a game, or, or in some cases, like just accessing news, weather, sports. You know, we powered all of the Billboard top 100 song charts. We powered Us Weekly and celebrity entertainment information. We powered Entertainment Tonight. We have powered shape where you could you could get workouts you know and it would be funny it would be like little numeric lists hmm. to tell you what your daily workout should be and so we we powered a lot of those services where consumers were getting the baseline and they would subscribe for a few bucks a month and it would go on their cell phone bill 
And that was the core business. We built the software to actually build those sites, the software to enable those billing transactions to be put on the cell phone bill. And we actually helped curate a list of content and services for the operators. And we had deals with Verizon and AT&T and Singular at the time and Sprint and... MCI. Were they around back then? Not... Were they MCI and Sprint had, had merged, <laughs> I think, at the time. But but we had... You know, what? there are a number of companies that are not... You know, I, I think sure. US is still around. And then there were some cell phone services. What was the walkie-talkie... One that we were oh, uh, Motorola was that the Motorola? That was, well, they made the phones, but they were the ones that became Sprint Nextel. Oh, you know, Nextel, yeah, phones? yeah. And we were doing all the Blackberries too. So you know, it's, we had a, a whole host of these services. I think the wake-up call in, in our journey that that business would no longer be viable, and that is the scariest thing in the entrepreneurial. So that that business got up to a few million dollars annually. That was the eight years of of wandering through the desert. And then the iPhone comes out in 2007. So you're 2003 to 2007. So you've been doing that for four years. So tell and, me, tell me, I got it. You're doing it. You have a small business there. And then all of a sudden, not a small piece of history, but a very big one for where we are today. The iPhone comes out. What is going through your mind, your head, what is your new pivot vision for the business? So the iPhone coming out was a huge wake-up call to me for a whole host of reasons. The first and probably largest was I was so used to working with the operators that were so inflexible. It was so bureaucratic. And my entire business rested on their goodwill to either integrate our service or not. The fact that AT&T, that Steve Jobs could call up, I think, I forget exactly, Randall or whoever it was that was running AT&T at the time, and convince them to put a device that was open ecosystem. Forget the fact that it was a touchscreen and it was Apple developed, but it actually had a set of apps and capabilities that no longer were controlled by the operator. So hmm. that the fact that they allowed that on the network and they didn't see that that meant that they would effectively, if it took off, become a dumb pipe. The entire content ecosystem that was on that platform would go away. That blew me away. I mean, I was just like, how do they not see one, what this is all about? And two, every person I talked to in the operator would be like, this will never happen. Like we will always control this. This is the future of the company. So I was, I was just, I just didn't believe it. You know, I didn't believe it. Then the iPhone came out. Okay. So they, they got it done. Then it went to all the other operators because it was a smash success. So, okay. And then what you realized is that it accessed in a normal browser, the entire internet. And this closed ecosystem that I built my business had a shelf life. And you know, over some period of time, people would migrate from their Nokia and Sony Ericsson and Motorola flip phones to that of, of the iPhone. And it was only a matter of time before you know, effectively my business and business model would expire. So that was that was a big challenge. So talk about challenges with businesses, especially after putting in eight years and creating this business that was on the rise and and all those deals you had with all the operators, how, what were you feeling inside internally 
at that time. Like you told me before, which is the truth is as an entrepreneur, even though there's no certainties, you have to move forward as you believe and and have that kind of mission or belief. But when you go and you think back to that time and think, oh, my business has a shelf life, personally, like, how are you feeling inside? Well, you know, it's interesting. On the one hand, I was aware that how I made money as of that date would have to change. So we had to figure out new models. On the other hand, I was so, call it uh, overshadowed. I had so much pressure and it was so difficult to operate within the carrier ecosystems. I was sort of hoping for Hmm. evolution or evolution where I would be free to do something else because it felt that I was always putting in this thing and waiting for somebody to make a decision. And then I, when things got like bigger, they would like try to take it away from me. So it was, it was too much concentration and not enough freedom of invention and too much wading through bureaucracy and hoping that you could sort of get some crumbs if they sort of liked you and would sort of give that to you. So, you know, there was a hope that there was a bigger opportunity and not a smaller opportunity. At least I was there in early and I was still young enough to actually take a hold of what that opportunity is and run with it. So we had services like we were powering the mobile sites for a number of these publishers that were on the flip phones. So we just built iPhone versions of that and enabled that to happen. So you'd have these glossy, high, you know, much higher resolution access to these mobile optimized websites for the phone. And yeah, we didn't have the billing transactions on it, but we were like, maybe we can now it's high and glossy enough that we can offer it to brands for advertising purposes. So first we put together a couple like integrated elements into the sites and gave it to the publishers to sell. And they're like, we don't sell this. We sell TV and we sell print pages and magazine. Like this is a, we're going to give this thing away for free. And I'm like, well, if you're giving it away for free, then let me sell it. They're like, good luck. You know, you go sell. <laughs> and, and so, so the business model was, well, if you sell it, we'll just split it 50, 50. So I'm like, great. I'm I guess I'm now going into ad sales. So, <laughs> So then you run around and you try to figure out that business. And lo and behold, that was a much better business than being in value-added services, ringtones, images, games, and uh, subscription to content business it, that I was in previously. It's amazing. I want to talk about how that pivoted and what the business actually was a little bit deeper. But for you personally, why do you think you're you're able or what is it about you that you're able to make that pivot. You were able to be resilient. You're able to pick yourself off the mat, really, in that case. Because a lot of people would say, I just put eight years into this. This thing's done. The iPhone's... I'm I'm done. I'm going to go get that corporate job. What is it about you that you were able to pivot and move on? I don't know that there's any one thing. I would say it's some combination of being stubborn having endless patience and and sort of grit to just, and being like, my wife always says, you know, you have such a short-term, you have such a, like a, you have a long-term memory, but you forget the pain that is associated (laughs) with the longer term pieces. So like, so I wouldn't call that a short-term memory because it's not like you forget, you just forget that you were in pain back then. You're like, oh, you did that thing already and you hated it. Why are you going to go and do it again? So from my perspective, well, like, 
but it's better now. And then the environment is better. And so like, let's go try it. Cause it's going to be going to be better now than it was before. And sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't obviously when the rules on the ground change, then you think, Hey, now's the time to go and try that good idea that failed last time. Let's try it again and see if the environment is more ripe for lack of a better term for that idea to take hold. And so I really do believe that like good ideas in themselves are not that valuable, but good ideas executed well in the right timing. That's the thing that has legs. And so you can have a great idea and it just, the timing's wrong and, and it doesn't, it's not ripe for the market. And so I always sort of evaluate when is the right time. I'll give you a great example. We just got into CTV. We're launching it right now. We bought a CTV company. I'll tell you a couple of years ago, and I almost look like hypocritical. I'm like, I will never get into CTV. And people are like, well, why would you never get into CTV? And I'm like, it's very obvious. All the good shows are on Netflix, on Disney, on Amazon. There's no advertising there. So all the advertising's on the long tail places that don't have very good content. So why would we ever want to be in places where there's just no... That's not where the eyeballs are. That's not where the disposable household income is. It just doesn't make any sense. So you're like, okay, I'm not going to do that. And then you continue on your core business. You keep on doing what you're doing. And then the CTV business that you're not in continues to grow. You see more companies getting funded. You're like, maybe that was a bad decision. And then Netflix announces that they're going to start accept advertising. You're like, okay, this <laughs> round have changed. Now let's now's a riper time to, and probably you wish you had done it a little while ago. But then again, I've also experienced that it always takes much longer for things to come about. And I experienced this in my own business with mobile. So if it always takes longer and I start now, there's probably, even though most people are like, what are you talking about? The, it's already so you know overcrowded. No, it's not. We're in early innings. You get in now, you come up with something new, you use your experience and the technology that you've built. You can absolutely get a differentiated product to market in a few years. And so you have that, that realization that one, things take longer. Two, the ground rules, when you decide not to do something, you, and that's a big idea that other people are doing, you set certain ground rules and you say, hey, conditions on the ground have changed if these things happen. When those happen, that, that should set the flag, the signal, the alert. But maybe you, you sort of course correct. So cargo, at the time, you have to pivot. You told us what you started, what you started doing. Take us through quickly or as quick as you can, just what you were doing, how it's, and you mentioned you've pivoted a bunch, but how from that point, it seems like that's really when the business took off and how did it start and where is it now? Yeah. So at the time, I'll leave you with, we were building these sites out and we were integrating sort of these ad experiences into the sites. And what was unique or different is that we were effectively, we didn't have any ad technology at the time. We were hard coding brand sponsorships directly into the site in a very unique and integrated way for those brands. So they were the core sponsors. You'd have like one sponsor for a site. It would last for a month or two, and then you would take it down. And it would be for a set sum of money and you would sort of record how many visits to the site would be the number of eyeballs that actually saw that integrated branding and sponsorship integration. But the neat thing is because we were hosting and managing the sites, we could think about what are those branded integrations and branded content look like in the site itself. So that was sort of the core idea from the very beginning. Then as, as that grew, we realized it wasn't that scalable, right? You got to go build, you got to have the contract, you got to build the site, you got to build it out, you got to build the 
creatives. You got to take the creatives down. You got to build the next creative. That's a very manual business. So we're like, how do we build technology around advertising that made those site integrations easier and easier? So we started building that and we did a good job. And it it allows us to turn things on on the site pretty quickly and build out those sponsorships. We were getting more sponsorships. And at the time, the world went to quote-unquote responsive design. So a lot of our publishers started taking back in-house the mobile. They had the desktop version, but they took the mobile version back in-house. So we're like, okay, well, the good news is that we built this technology to allow us to serve what feels like sponsored content or sponsorships or these unique formats on your site, whether we host it or whether you host it. So, But the economics are not going to change. So it's up to you. Do you want to host it or do you want us to host it and manage it? And a lot of the sites were like, some were like, you continue to host it. Many of them said, no, 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 we'll host it, but you continue to serve these better creatives in. If we sell it, you know, you run it. And if you sell it, you run it. And so we're like, great. And that grew to like hundreds, you know, over, I would say a decade, grew to hundreds of sites across mobile. Mobile in itself grew, became the dominant platform. And we got up to about 125 billion. Right now, we're at about 125 billion ad requests that we see every month hmm. to give you some sense of just sort of the scale of the business. And that's across virtually every major media company, their site and their mobile site. At the same time, we and so that that's what I call the cargo brand business that continues to exist today. It's primarily mobile. We made the decision that we were losing business around advertising to companies that had mobile but would also do desktop and tablet and other screens. So we didn't want to lose opportunities because we weren't quote unquote cross screen. So we're like, great. If we have 20 different formats that we have the data that proves that we can drive certain outcomes for advertisers. On mobile, let's go build five for desktop that are non-standard. And, and again, the idea was how do we decommoditize the format so it's not standard banners that really breaks through the clutter and gets people to pay attention and are not annoying. That's a key thing. Hmm. Most people are like, I hate advertising, so annoying. We're like, we want to integrate it in a way that you still never pops up over the content. You can still read the content, but it certainly catches your attention and gets you to click, gets you to, to find out more. So we got that business to about 125 billion impressions. There's hundreds of millions of dollars of ad revenue that goes through that brand business. And then in the pandemic, I said, this is really our opportunity as other people pull back for us to take some bets and to sort of push forward. And so we bought a business on social that was powering the digital catalogs for major retailers. So when you go in your Instagram feed, you go down and you see Saks or Macy's or Williams Sonoma or others. What you see is this beautiful catalog with products that were personalized to you, and you could swipe across this catalog, replacing that paper catalog that you used to get and see something that you like. And then you can click on it and it will take you out to a browser to either purchase it or you can walk into store and buy it. I believe that product discovery, for lack of a better term, the idea of how do you find new clothes, new shoes, new bags, new makeup, new trips, new kitchenware, the old expectation that you're going to spend your Saturdays and Sundays shopping in stores and discovering new products. I think that pattern and behavior is not as strong as it used to be and will continue to decline. And so tripping across products on the internet, whether you're in social or you're on the open web or it's on CTV, 
seeing that catalog, browsing through it and finding something that you like, and then gratifying yourself by purchasing it either online and have it shipped to your home or go and try it on. If you want to, if it's a bigger purchase and you want to try it on in store, that is a big problem that needs to be solved. And I don't know that anybody has solved that really well yet. And that is where the future is going. Just like I knew that mobile was going. So by buying this business as the foundation, plus cargos, integrated elements across the whole open internet, plus what we're doing now with CTV, that's one big problem that I think we can solve. We can solve the commerce side and we're already in the brand side. So we can actually get brand love and attention on the one side and drive that sort of what we call unprompted memory. So like, oh yeah, I'm looking for a new pair of shoes. I saw somewhere that amazing pair of Adidas or New Balance or Nike. I want to go and get those. So we can get that unprompted memory around product into people's hands or even around branding. And then at the same time, we can start to assist major retailers to actually drive those outcomes and get them to actually purchase. And so putting those two pieces together into a single company across all these different screens, I think there's a big opportunity for that. And I don't know very many companies, if any, that have sort of the scale and have all the technology pieces to actually pull that off. Well, for someone who definitely all along the way was way ahead of their time on a lot of cases and uh, with a lot of businesses, it sounds like right now you are hitting your sweet spot. And I want to thank you, Harry, for coming on the show and sharing your story. It's it's certainly inspirational, really, just how you were able to have that vision of where things were headed and going and and really being correct. I was I was taking some notes myself a few minutes ago when you were telling me where we're going next for another business. But anyway, I do appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your story. It's really, really incredible. Uh, I love the patience and just how you kept picking yourself off the mat and pivoting and look where you are today. I appreciate that. It's uh it's been a really fun journey and and hopefully, you know, some of these bets that we make, you know, will make it even funner as we go into the next few years. So appreciate being on the show. Thanks for inviting me. Hopefully it'll be helpful to young entrepreneurs that are thinking about their own journey, some of the lessons of grit and persistence and being true to your to your vision and to your gut. And hopefully, hopefully there's some learnings there. So I, I appreciate being on the show. Thank you. Absolutely. I learned a lot. Thank you. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning, and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost, and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman, that's R-O-B-E-R-T-T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business, or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.